Welcome to the Adventures in Growth podcast, where we share the stories of exceptional founders and leaders in startups and tech. We dive into the secrets to their success, operating a game-changing tech companies, and we share their playbooks of how they've built their careers, led outstanding teams, and designed the life they want. Subscribe to this podcast newsletter at adventuresingrowth.co to receive exclusive weekly insights to supercharge your professional and personal growth. This week, we're speaking with Todd Rohde, VP of RevOps at Zebiant. Todd started his career at West Point, serving as an artillery officer in the Army before a medical discharge forced a career change. After gaining his MBA from the Kellogg School of Management, Todd leveraged his operational acumen to work at Mars, Consensus Point, and Nissan before transitioning to tech and RevOps with Reltia. In this episode, we cover Todd's career journey, including how he applied his strengths in analytics and project management to move into revenue operations. Todd provides insights on sales myths, optimizing the customer journey, and key processes for early stage companies. He also shares advice on networking intentionally, knowing yourself through assessments, and embracing authenticity as a leader. Welcome to Adventures in Growth. We've got a lot to talk to you about. I think you've got some really interesting views around career switching, and we'll come to that later. But before we do, perhaps we can dive in and you can tell us a little bit about what RevOps is, because I think it's a relatively new function. And I think giving, uh, firstly, just for me, I'd love to know, but I think giving our audience a sense of what that function is and how it's grown would be really helpful to set that, that baseline. Absolutely. And there's really been, there's been, a, you're exactly right. It really didn't exist, you know, even 10 years ago, right? And so the best definition that I can give of, of RevOps that I, when I talk about it is, is it ties together all the people, process, and resources across the lead to lasting customer journey. Right. So there basically means there are a lot of things that happen from the time, first time a customer pops up on your radar all the way through when you want them to be a raving evangelist on your business. Uh, a lot of departments are involved there and that baton can get dropped at any different point along the way. And so there are a lot of things you can do kind of pre, during and post that to make sure that is, you know, a positive journey for that customer and that they become a life, a lifelong new evangelist for your business. How is it different than what I guess would think of as traditionally as like sales? What's the difference between RevOps and sales? Is sales part of RevOps? Is that? Exactly right. So going back and then you asked me for the, the evolution, I could walk through that. Take, we go back a dozen years. We'll work back and have a sales version of this. Typically, if you wanted to find something that sounded anywhere near like what RevOps has become over the last you know, decade plus, you would have had to have found a role that had something like insights or analysis in it, right? Usually within sales and marketing. So you would find you know, a large CPG company with a consumer insights, for example, usually it rolled up to something like a, you know, a, a marketing function. It was pretty narrowly focused within that department and it was typically outward facing. So what's happening in the market that can help us to drive sales? And then well, what happened was sales ops came along and we said, hey, babe, you know, we should take all that outward focusing stuff and bring it inside. So let's go ahead and take that. Let's take the analysis. Let's continue the outside and let's add an internal facing one. And oh, by the way, let's make sure that we have, you know, our hygiene internally. So our systems and our, our processes and our pipeline and so on straight. So that we can make sure that, you know, we can make sure that everything's going to run very well within sales. Then someone smart came along and said, well, hold on a second. Sales is part of revenue, which is everything that could touch a customer, right? So marketing sales development, sales, client success. We can actually sprinkle in legal finance and, and finance as well in there as parts that are that you know touch the customer journey. All of those things need to work together really well. We can't just focus on the processes and systems and resources within sales because now you're leaving the other things on the table, right? So if you have a fully vetted out marketing process, like a marketing funnel, and then there's no handoff to sales to make sure that's smooth, that's not going to go very well. And so revenue operations came along and said, let's go ahead and, and go across the full customer journey to make sure that all of this is tied together and, and works really well together. And so sales is just a, is a portion of that. And one, one thing I'll say is the, the interesting thing is that we're already seeing part of the, the next evolution of this, which is sort of begs the question, right? If sales is part of revenue, well, revenue is part of a company. And so why not have corporate operations where you essentially try to figure out how to tie all of this stuff together? So you're essentially enabling an entire organization to work really well together. 
Would the idea be, there be that you you make sure that your logistics, your back office operations, the other parts of the business are geared towards driving revenue as opposed to just seeing revenue as this number that kind of is dependent on the salespeople closing leads and getting leads? Is that right? Absolutely. You're exactly right. So all of your enablement, so your training, your resources, all of those things, and that's your onboarding and your ongoing across your teams. Uh, that's making sure that your metrics are aligned across the organization so it's not siloed, right? Marketing is focused on MQLs and sales is focused on close one business. And those, those things are always work together. It's just, it's tying all those things together and having a real, you know, revenue or, or sales focus, but then realizing that there are other parts of the business that can work together with that. And to that end, you, you mentioned the customer journey. Can you walk us through what that customer journey typically might look like in the B2B space and how different is that to, to other spheres? Lily, there, there are different flavors of this that you'll see as far as the acronyms. But typically, when I actually help map out this journey within companies, the very first thing I talk about is what distinguishes a random person on the street from a, a lead. And you can and you want to define lead how you want to, how you want to you know, need to define it for your business. Uh, there's some usually some level of qualification, but what defines that person? A lead being someone that could have a, a need that your company could solve. Right. So the most basic definition. And then you go all the way through and there are different levels of qualification as that person moves through the buyer journey. On so from there in, you know, the customer or the or the prospect or the buyer, which there's lots of words for them, they're in their own journey of this. And you're trying to map the the customer journey on your end to make sure that those two work really well together. So that you're uncovering the insights that you need and doing the qualification you need. You're moving them along in a in a consistent, repeatable way. Again, from lead all the way through your lasting customer, and that they're also getting what they need too, right? Because it's a you know it's a process, and it's it needs to be mutual between the two. As you've got more senior in RevOps, how important has it been for you to touch on different pieces of that customer journey from a functional perspective? For someone trying to build a career in this sphere, can you? Is it good to be a specialist, or is it better to be at least early on a generalist to understand that end to end process? That is a great question. Typically, you come in again, it's evolved over time. The three areas I've seen kind of come the most into and, and start taking the leadership roles in RevOps usually come from some sort of sales analysis. So they would have done sales operations or, or sales analytics, FP&A on the finance side, uh, typically making very good RevOps leaders, and then also project management because there's a heavy element of process improvement and project management, again, tying all of those things together, you know, people, people process and resources, including technology across those different teams. And so what I found, I came in from the analysis side, right? I was in those analytics and, and insights groups coming out of Kellogg. And, and so I specialized. And then as the role grew, it just, I just decided to pursue the roles that would allow me to take on that much more. So I, and this is one thing I advocate as far as career switching, which we'll get into, operate from a position of strength and be very intentional about what your strengths are. I don't claim, you know, I, I grew along with the role with RevOps as it evolved. I evolved with it. I just intentionally sought out those opportunities that were evolving as the role evolved and it worked out. To that end, what are those strengths that you think you need to get to that point as you are in your career? Yeah. So one of them you already, you've already touched on is there has to be technical prowess, right? There's typically, there are going to be systems involved at your most basic, a CRM, like a Salesforce or a HubSpot is, is going to be involved. And so having some kind of a technical prowess, that's going to be project management analysis. Those things are, are going to serve you well, and, and you have to be able to do those things. You have to be able to, so it's not just enough to understand the system or to be able to do analysis. You have to have some sort of uh, drive for results. So you need to be able to actually get things done and move towards something, right? So analyze toward decision. And then the last thing I would say is the big component is service. And that's probably the hardest to measure when you're in one of these roles, whether it's revenue operations or appropriate operations like I'm doing now, you're there to serve the rest of the organization. That's your customer. And so none of the work you do is actually your own. You're doing that for, you're helping this group to make sure that their dashboard is, is set up correctly and their KPIs are aligned within their group and tied into something larger within the organization. You're helping this, you know, this other group map out a process for the first time that's a core process and absolutely critical to the business running. So you're working across these groups and you're helping them in a good view. You could be helping them to get from a zero to a, you know, one or you know, a four, or you could be helping an organization or a group get from a, you know, a six to an eight, for example. So it's all different levels 
And you have to have that service mentality to make sure that you are helping them get what they need, which helps the business get what the business needs. That's, I've got a feeling we're going to be talking about service mentality when it comes to your military background and how you switch. But Andy, I can see, I see you got a question. Yeah, I, I think the idea of a strength-based approach to career progression is is really interesting. And, you know, laying out a couple of things, aspects that you kind of honed in on when you were thinking about specializing in, in RevOps. Can you talk a little bit about like how you kind of landed on those and maybe some that you considered that either were interesting or you were good at, but ultimately weren't where you wanted to focus and kind of how, maybe how you thought about those things along the way? Sure. So this is, and this gets into the, you know, the career profession part. I promise it starts off sounding like a Zen bumper sticker, and it actually ends up being very, very practical advice that I've used for myself and I've, and I've, I've helped others, military and, and other career career switchers over the years. And so the first part is knowing yourself, uh, which again, there's your bumper sticker. But it, but the practical part is there are a number of assessments that that many of us are familiar with, right? There's MBTI, there is you know Strengths Finder. You've got DISC, predictive index. There are a number of assessments out there that you can do. And the first thing that I would challenge people to do, because this is something that it, it took me longer than I'd like to admit to figure this out. And once I did, it was a game changer for, you know, for my life and for my career. And so do those assessments, put in the work on that. That's the know yourself side of, you know, side of this. Put in the work. My personal favorites are predictive index and strengths finder. Those are the ones that have spoken to me most consistently over the times that I've taken them over the years and have served me the best. Take multiple ones, look, you aggregate the results, look for the patterns and validate them with yourself and with people who know you well. And this is the key, know you well at work, right? Don't go to your friends and family and say, Hey, do I, does this sound like me? It might partly sound like you, but not how you show up in the workplace. So if you put in the work and what I did that, you know, my predictive index, you know, comes back consistently as analyzer. And it essentially says, you know, there's a whole lot of words that they give you when you go through the full paid version, but there's a whole lot of words that basically say you're someone who likes to gather information, analyze things, you know, drive for results and basically design processes and make things better. And so once I listen to that and fully embrace that, that's what I do for a living and I love doing it. And so, you know, here I'm on a blog talking about it, or I'm on a a podcast talking about it. I I blog about it, right? I've done talks before about it. And so I keep coming back to that again and again professionally. And that's where when I talk about operating from a position of strength and and assessing your talents, that's where I found that it's helped me out uh, uh, tremendously. It's a really important facet, isn't it, of understanding how to be successful. And to that end, when you first go into an organization, what are the key things you think about in the first 90 days? How do you make sure that you build your credibility and give yourself breathing space to do your job effectively? Absolutely. First one is quick wins. And so again, operating from a position of strength. If I know how to do something, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quickly assess and see if there's an area that I can dig into and build some of that rapport and some of that credibility. Right. So if that's something in, in this role, so I think about a year ago when I first started in my current role, I was the CRM admin, the data op, you know, the data analytics and, you know, and reporting person, the project manager and, and, and process improver, you know, all of those things. And so I took a look really quickly. I, I, I listened, I met with a bunch of people. I listened and then I it seemed like I had, and there were a couple of areas that I, I could have kind of low hanging fruit validated those with those individuals and then really quickly knocked those projects out and got those, you know, got some value created for those individuals, right? And so small project for me based on something that I knew how to do, potentially big impact for that person and a lot of early credibility. That's the first thing is, you know, meet a lot of people, assess, you know, listen, respond as you can and deliver some early value is the first part. The other part is around meeting people and listening is but try to separate the the quick wins and the areas where you can help from the times when you need to just be quiet and listen and understand the the flow of the organization and and how things are going and you know how you can fit and how you can add value. For sometimes if you jump in too early and try to add value, it might be because you don't fully understand what's going on. Maybe you need to take a beat, listen a little bit more, and then wait maybe a you know a, a couple more meetings. And, and then you'll fully understand what's happening and you can actually even be even more impactful. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and to that mind, what is value in your mind as a RevOps leader? 
when you mention those projects, is it actually delivering sales? Is it delivering operational efficiency or is it some combination of those things? It's more operational efficiency than anything else, right? So, so when, we're, when we think about RevOps and a lot of us, you can hear about, you'll hear about optimization and efficiency and those things. And yes, those are the fancy words for we're making things better. The, the two ways I like thinking about it is there's there is the results portion, right? That's how the business actually operates and how things get done. So that's kind of like the car going down the road. And then there's and then there's the improvements and the maintenance and the the betterments, right? And those things, which is making the car go faster, run smoother, be you know, basically be better. So you always have those, you always have those two things. And so this is really this is really more the second part. And it's enabling others to be able to, you know, do their jobs better. So then can you get specific on that? Is it about the sales conversion cycle? Is it about the number of leads or the quality of leads and conversion? Like how do you think about that from an operationally operational efficiency perspective? Great question. So it's you're not really generating necessarily generating more leads, right? So going zeroing in on, on that part of it. The marketing team will, will be they're focused on that. Uh, this is working with the marketing team to make sure that every one of those sources they have in, so website form fills to in-person conferences to your webinars that you're putting on, all of your different, you know, your you know, Google Paper, all of those different sources, every single one of those is coming in and being processed the same that you have a service level agreement for that, whether it's the marketing team or a BDR or someone that's on the you know in the revenue team that they're reaching out. So it's essentially thinking about that baton getting passed. It's making sure that those leads all come in. So 100% of them from all the different sources come in and get ingested in the system that you're responding to them and that you're qualifying them in a way or processing them in a way that makes sense um, for your organization is repeatable. And that there's some sort of a way, a path forward into the sales cycle. So I hand off to someone of the sales team. Or there is some kind of a nurture track based on some sort of a disqualification rule. Right. So lead lead comes in and it turns out it's actually it's actually a current customer and they downloaded the white paper because they had heard from someone on the, on the client success team that it was interesting and they just went straight to the website and got it. Disqualified lead, current customer seeking information, for example, with a note to the CSM saying, Hey, XYZ, you know, someone from XYZ Corporation downloaded this, and then the CSM can follow up. So that's your that's kind of your process group, right? Versus person who shows up on webinar ask a couple of good questions on the webinar that gets recorded. And then that person comes in from that and is interested, needs to have a discovery call with either a BDR or a sales rep to then move forward. Those are very different processes. And so making sure going to those teams and it's it's very tedious and it's going to take, you know, in some cases a lot longer than that team wants, but really going in and being intentional about uh, linking all of those things together to make sure that nothing's falling through the cracks. It feels like the the customer insights piece of this is such a, a crucial component. Obviously, as you're thinking about you know lead handling and and funnels and and optimizing processes. How do you think about this as a leader? You know, across you know we haven't really talked much yet about you know product and product marketing and things like that. How do you think about customer insights with the customer, et cetera, from your vantage point? You know, both as a leader and kind of within the rev ops function specifically. Yeah. So part of it is it's you know it's role modeling behavior of collaboration in the organization, right? None of this happens in a vacuum, and so thinking about leadership as I mentioned as a servant. And that servant leadership is an idea that I got when I was, you know, where I was an officer in the army. And it was, it's something that is just, it's part of the culture, right? So thinking about, you know, waking up and thinking about how can I use my role to help others? How can I empower my team? And how is this thinking about this holistically, right? So if we, I mean, everything from, if we create this custom field to if we change this workflow to if we, you know, it's, it's a variety of different things. If we speed up the sales cycle, who does this impact? Which conversations do I have to have? There's a lot of coordination that happens with this. It's not just you know enabling technology. You know, so plugging in a new extension into your CRM or doing some analysis. There's a there are a lot of conversations that take place behind the scenes. You know, and that's really the hard work. It's making those connections with those individuals, like you said. There's some of this impacts people that are outside of the pure revenue team, right? People on the product team. There are insights that roll in. That you can take from everyone from your marketing team, your BDR team, 
you know, there are conversations of feedback that they're getting through your sales team and your client success team that you can actually feed into your product team without that product team ever having to actually sit in front of that customer. And so, which I know they all, they always want to do, and they typically get stiff armed from those other groups. And so you can actually give, drive a lot of insights over to that product team that can feed into the process and you can do it in more of a roundabout way that is helpful. And then they can figure out how to get into, you know, your customer panels and other things and they can get that more direct feedback. To that end, what, what have you found to that very point successful when trying to gather customer feedback and present it to product or product marketing? What practical tips would you give teams looking to do that if the product team can't be in direct contact? Yeah, that's a great question. Just working with uh, my solution engineer on this just a, l- a little bit ago. So having a repeatable format, which you're going to hear me say again and again, right? It's all about your frameworks and your, you know, and your structures to make sure it's repeatable. Make sure you have a consistent way of ingesting that information is one and, and cataloging it. And then the next thing is making sure that then you you have some kind of a cadence, whether it's every X number of meetings or every you know Y number of days to make sure you're going through and you're, and you're distilling the insights from that. And then you're feeding those into the product team and the expectation should be managed both ways. The product team should know that the insights are coming in X number of customers or days, right? So it's not just... I talked to Dan and Andy. They gave me this feedback about this one you know, piece of functionality in our, within our platform. And then I'm going to run off to the product team and say, hey, put this on the product roadmap to change it, right? It's more of, okay, I heard that once. If I hear it five or 10 more times over the next 30 days, I can take that and I can, you know, and now that's, you know, aggregated feedback that I can take back and feed to that team. So it's more of more than just a one-off. It's, you know, it really is a, you're seeing a pattern. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it is that pattern that's key, isn't it? But it, it, it's fascinating because you've clearly built up this incredible expertise in RevOps and a very broad expertise as well, understanding the needs of product and marketing. But you start, as you mentioned, you started at West Point and you became an artillery officer. How did you navigate that that switch and how did you end up here? To what extent you mentioned, obviously, doing the very tactical exercises around understanding your personality, but what other things have you thought about when managing that career transition? What lessons are there for some of our listeners as they think about those things? Absolutely. It was abrupt, right? So I was, as you mentioned, I graduated West Point. I was out as an artillery officer, and then I was medically discharged very abruptly, very unexpectedly. So I was um, just shy of three years in, into my journey in the army, thinking 10 years, you know, 10 years into my career ahead, right? And it was truly a career. And so I didn't just lose my job. I lost, you know, all the preparation, all the, you know, all of that that went into having an actual career in the military. And I was extremely unprepared. I had spent exactly zero time thinking about anything aside of what my first 10 years in the army was going to be like. Right. And so I did things somewhat right, but similar to Maybe someone experiencing a riff right now, which I have a high level of empathy for, right? Having experienced something similar to that, I was unprepared. And so that some of the advice, you know, that I give is don't do what I did, which is people say, well, get out there and network, which for me just meant talking to a bunch of people. So I did it partly right, but network with a purpose. So if you've done the work, so start doing the work now. On those self-assessments, understand where you're strong at work, right? Where you show up and where you basically where you can win and where you're, you know, where you can operate from a position of strength at work. And then network with that in mind. It doesn't have to be, you don't have to think about necessarily a particular, you know, role. You can think about it, the types of work or the type of activities that take place. So I'm thinking about or the, you know, in the size of the company, for example. So I, I typically like to make decisions this way. I'm more or less collaborative. I, I think I like more small to medium-sized businesses. Not sure B2C, not sure that really matters to me. So you can start going through the different variables of the type of companies. Then when you talk to someone, it's not like what I did, which was a series of really nice conversations with people who wanted to help me, but just didn't know how because I was showing up and I had no idea what I wanted. And so they were happy to talk to me. They were happy to give me referrals to other people. And so I networked like a champion, except it didn't really go, it didn't really go anywhere. I actually lucked into the role that I had uh, post-military and and pre-Kellogg. And so I don't recommend that route. I recommend again looking at those areas, doing those assessments, understanding yourself first, that's the know yourself first. And then the second part, after you've done that hard work, which is the the much, much harder part, 
because it takes a lot more time and quite honestly, a lot more courage. This is the other half of that bumper sticker, which is be yourself. Once you know how you're strong, once you know how you like to work and where you can win at work, then you need to actually be that person because that's you, right? Those assessments told you, that's you telling you about you. So listen to those things, embrace them. When you network with people or when you look for opportunities, look for the activities and the things that sound like you, right? So you're going to, instead of seeking a role that's based on title or company or some sort of, you know, other more superficial thing, look for and talk, have the conversation, conversations around those areas where you know that you can win and you know you can show up and be strong and get those quick wins that we talked about, right? Have that be your conversation. And then you'll find, you'll basically fit, you make the world fit you versus trying to fit you into the world. That's where I learned it was really, it, honestly, it was really just kind of prior to Kellogg and at Kellogg. And that's why I sought out when everyone else was in the program I was in that when they were doing the brand management and the finance space roles, right? In this huge CPG company, I was the guy going completely different way and saying, I'd really like to be in a team that, you know, really digs into data and understands edge insights back in the business. And people thought I was crazy. But I kept, I, I did that and I kept sticking to that because somewhere I knew because of these assessments, that's where I was going to win. And so that's the advice I'd give is be that intentional for yourself. And then when the next opportunity comes along or as like with me, with, as RevOps evolved, as that evolution happens, which is, you know, perfect in hindsight, but it's just sort of, look, it was as long as you're going, continue, you know, stop and think, take a look up, look at what's happening, look at where you want to go. And again, based on, you know, based on your strengths, go and find that next role, right? Versus taking the other path of, well, I need to go and follow this route. You know, I need to go, you know, follow this route because of this role, because it has more money or because the title sounds more prestigious or because it's at this big name company that I, you know, that the advertised during the Super Bowl or something, that could be the right fit for you. But make sure it's aligned with the other part first and then seek that out. Last thing is use your, use, use your actual built-in network, right? Undergrad and especially Kellogg, one of the things that, that I've happened that I've, I've you know, had the benefit of doing once I figured out how to network correctly is not only use that network to bounce that those assessments off of, especially if you've worked with that person, whether that's coursework or career work, it's a safe space, right? And it's also a safe space to say, look, I don't know what my next role is. So if you're career switching, it's saying, or, hey, I just got rift. I'm, I think I'm looking for something like fill in the blank with those variables that we talked about that fit you. That's a safe space to talk to. And, and that person, it could just be a good sounding board, which is great. Or that person could say, hey, I think there's a think we're thinking about that in, in my current company, especially if you're talking to someone that's more in the early stage or, or startup space, roles materialize out of nowhere all the time. And so there's that's part of the hidden job market that you only find out about if you know somebody who is who has access to that role. So consider that as well. Use your network and, and use it with a purpose. That's great advice. You mentioned something in a previous conversation. You talked about also values and mission being really important and thinking about your career like an athlete. Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Yeah. A couple of different thoughts there. Value, values absolutely matter uh, in, in a company. I'm, I'm a big fan of there's a, for early stage companies and startups, there is a methodology for running a business called the EOS or entrepreneurial uh, operating system. And part of that, one of the six components of it is values. And you go through an exercise where you define the values and they end up being becoming self-evident. As you explore kind of how you've gotten to that point in the company, your values materialize and they are, you know, everything from, you know, I've been in companies where that have used this, that have, where their values have been things like honest conversations make us stronger. And, you know, my current company, we have ones like we thrive and we care and there, you can't make up your values that they just, they seem false. And I think we've all worked at companies. I know I have where the values are something that is. They're trotted out occasionally, right? Once a quarter, once a year. They're usually in some kind of, you know, the, on, on the background, right? It looks really pretty or they're on the company, you know, they're on the website. But when you think about, you know, the best company should be, everything should be values focused, right? The Not just the products that you go after and the customers that you serve and how you do that, but internally you should be hiring, firing, rewarding, recognizing, promoting all those things based on values, 
It should be at the very first interview that you're doing, and it should be constant assessment of you know of your peers and your and you know the, the employees of that company throughout that. Those are the ones that are truly values driven companies. The the rest are just kind of phoning it in, and so that's you know that's for me. I, I put that out there as a in general companies need to be doing that. Going on a mission and purpose, this is just something that personally resonates with me. And it's actually something that came through when I did the Strengths Finder. That was one of my top five was that working for a company that has mission and purpose truly matters to me. And that's something that I should focus on and I should be attuned in. How that played out for me was, again, I worked at a couple of really large, you know, Fortune 500 size companies that are name brand. You see them advertised on, you know, on TV and social media all the time. And I love their products. I continue to buy their products, even though I don't work for those companies anymore. But those products did not get me out of bed, right? So for me, and and this isn't true for everybody, but for me, those products weren't a means to an end. They were just sort of an end, right? Or just just a means, I guess. I love consuming the products, using the products, but they don't drive me. And so for me, and one of the reasons why I enjoy some of the SaaS-based companies where I work are... And it doesn't have to be just this, but that are using technology to solve problems and accelerate, you know, cycles of you know delivery for services and products is that gets me excited. That's real change, right? And it doesn't have to be curing cancer. It doesn't have to be something that's that obvious. It can be just something that allows a company to do something in hours or days that it was taking weeks or months to do that then they can turn around and deliver to their customer and make that experience that much better. That's huge. So mission and purpose really matters. But I would say, and then to the last, that last part that you mentioned, thinking about your career like an athlete, this is something that I, that uh, was introduced to me in, in actually one of those large companies where I worked. And the idea immediately clicked with me, thinking about taking your career and very, you know, very seriously and treating it like an athlete does, right? So aligning your nutrition, making sure that you're taking care of yourself, that you're there. On your body, you know, up, you know, at everything, not just at work, but at, you know, outside, you're getting the proper rest and recovery, everything from literal sleep. So actually getting sleep and resting, but just taking care of yourself. And so those are things that, you know, I continue to do to this day and some of which I don't enjoy doing very much, right? Like I, I've hated working out in the morning my entire life, including when I was in the RA. And then I get up every morning and I do a workout because that's me making sure that I'm going to take care of myself. Because I know that I'm going to have a hundred different excuses during the day to not work out. And so if I work out in the morning, no one's bothering me at 5.30 or 6 a.m. usually. And so that's my time to, to get that workout in. And I can guarantee myself I can do that, right? So it's, it's just, it's making time for those things and treating that as important. Yeah. Again, good advice. I think it's easy, isn't it? When you're working to lose sight of work-life balance and it's so easy. Take, it's not just about work. You got to take care of yourself. So, so critical. And it's hard. It's hard sometimes, right? We all have demands on our time and not just at work, but of course our families and our friends and the other things that we want to do, right? There's a lot to fit in. There's always so many hours. And so you do what you can and try to make time for the things that are important to you. The, the advice that I was given is try to make your health important, right? Because we're going to be doing this work thing for, you know, I think we're about to tell me, we're telling graduate Kellogg in what, 10 years and do a 40 year journey. That's a long haul. And so, you know, take care of yourself because that's, you know, this is what you've got to get that work done. As you've got older, how have you thought about balancing work life? Like what you mentioned getting up early in the morning to do a workout. What other techniques have you used to make sure that you're not just being ground down into the dust at work? Setting boundaries and limits. You know, I've been a remote guy since you know, even pre-pandemic and absolutely love it. I also love going out and, and getting FaceTime, you know, with my team and, and having having that time as well. But there's definitely, I mean, I'm, you know, 10 steps, 20 steps from my kitchen and the, you know, the bedroom's just up the stairs. And so making sure that I'm setting limits on when I'm working and when I'm not, because it can be really easy to let me just check my email one more time, right? Let me just respond to that one thing which one sets the tone and the expectations for me in my house with how I'm going to show up to work, good and bad. It also sets the expectations with my team, unless I'm really conscientious around setting you know, time delays on emails. If I'm sending them things on, you know, when I'm thinking about things, you know, at 5 a.m. or 6 a.m. when I'm working out or at 
you know, 9 a.m. on a Saturday or I've, you know, had time to digest something. If I'm sending them that email, that's actually the expectation for them as well. And I I really want to be, you know, conscientious of that, that we all need to have boundaries and limits on when we're working and when we're not. And so that's one thing really, you know, sleep hygiene. And I'm hypersensitive to this. My, you know, the reason that I was discharged from the army was a a medical discharge because of a, a sleep disorder. It's a lesser known one that really affects the, the quality of sleep that I get and, and affects me to this day. And so I'm really big on sleep hygiene, right? I've got all the apps and everything that shut all my technology off at a certain time of night. I'm very clear at work with people. I've learned to become transparent with that, right? That's one of the things that makes me me and affects how I show up to work. And so I used to, I used to hide that or avoid talking about it. And now I'm very open about it. And so I still make sure that I, I get the things done that I, I need to get done, but I don't shy away from having that conversation, letting people know that you know, after a certain time at night, I, I will shut down uh, everything and you, we won't hear from me until you know five in the morning the next day, most likely. And so those are, those are the kind of things. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's the emphasis on sleep and the importance of sleep has become much more widespreadly spread and understood, isn't it? I think the people have recognized that getting good sleep is as good as eating well or exercising. And it's like one of those three, three legs of that stool that you really need to think about. That's absolutely. As you kind of think about your career, it's going to change tack a little bit, but I think it's the same kind of idea around challenging convention, challenging sort of myths, because I think you've got some strong ideas around your experiences of areas that, that, you know, where there's a convention, but actually you've seen that not to be the case. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Absolutely. There's a number that I've seen. And as I progress through, you know, sales and then into RevOps, which has a few more processes across groups, there are some big areas within those two that, that I've noticed. One is there are a number of salesmen, and actually I've got a blog series coming up about this that, that talks about this, but uh, a few of them are sales just happens. Right. And so if you've got your, you know, your marketing and your operations and your finance and other things in place, you're essentially an order taker and, and this, the orders just come in. And another one is that sales is 100% an art. You either have it or you don't. And, and there's zero science to it. And the last one within sales is that sales is easy. Right. If you have that ability to do it, you just, you show up and smile and shake hands and life's good. And so I've seen all of those just get completely destroyed in the real, you know, in a real environment, you know, those, you do have to work at sales. You do have to have processes and it's not just an art. There is, of course, there's art to it. There's also a heavy dose of science that, in, that includes, that can be taught, you know, process and matters wi- within that. And then, you know, sales, I tell people sales is simple, right? Sales math is typically very simple. If I have a, a quota and my average deal size is this, then I know how many deals I have to, I have to go after. Sales math is should be pretty straightforward and easy. It's not the most difficult thing to do in business, but that doesn't mean, or sorry, sales is, I should say sales is simple, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's easy. So I'm very quick to become quick to differentiate those two. I try to make it, I try to make it easier through process, but there's still quite a bit of work that goes into it. And that's often misunderstood, particularly with some of the groups that, that work with sales that, you know, just see, you know, especially on on the enterprise size of the you know, size of deals, seeing these six and seg- or seven and eight figure deals just getting closed, and we think, oh, all the salesperson had to do is again show up and smile and you know fly to a city and shake some hands, and good things happen. Then it's there is so much more that goes into it that are you know behind the scenes to make that happen and to make sure that it happens again and again as you grow your company. On the art versus science myth, I think that's so interesting. Can you expand a little bit on where you, you see kind of the most resistance around process or kind of like scientific method in action versus the other view? Oh, absolutely. One of the one of the biggest areas where I see this is in deal velocity, right? So particularly in a complex sales cycle where you have, you know, all of your hallmarks of things that make it really hard to close a deal, right? So typically enterprise or you know, large, larger deal size, you know, larger, you know, sales price. Multiple decision makers, many many months of work, so multiple deal stages across a, a variety or a number of months, you know, three, six, or more months, depending on the industry that you're in. Time kills deals, and what's interesting is what I see time and time again when I do my close lost analysis on these on the, the deals is that we are not only are you fighting time, but you're also fighting human psychology. So what's interesting is that if you take a look at your closed one, your averages versus your closed lost averages, 
what I found again and again is the pattern is that your closed one deals are typically, or I should say your closed loss deals, typically when they finally do close, they're, they take 25 to 50% longer to close. So they, their age is greater when you close them and their valuation is to, uh, your 20, about 25 to 30% greater than your closed one deals. So when you think about that, it actually makes it, it makes perfect sense if you just understand a little bit of human psychology, which is that well, one part is just the sales process. You typically you negotiate deal value down, you know, as you get closer to closing it. So that's just a give and take part of that. So that explains the valuation part. But the time part, I started digging at this a few years back, and the thing that I found again and again is we are loss, you know, aversive as a species, right? We hate losing things. We're pack rats. That comes, the same thing plays out with sales. And so one of the things that I'm tracking is not just deal movement, but I'm also tracking lack of deal movement. Aging is is a big thing because I know that deal is going to get put out on a, on a parking lot date. So like December 31st, for example, we're going to forget about it. We're going to focus on the deal that we know we can close, which makes sense. But I also don't want to, you know, as a salesperson, I, I don't want to give up that deal, right? So I'm going to keep that valuation. I'm going to keep it out there. And it's just in case. Right, I don't want to close it because that 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 hurts me psychologically, you know, deep down. So I'm going to hold on to it just in case it's going to close, even though I, I honestly know if, if you sat me down and talk to me about it, it's really not moving forward. Has a very small chance. And so that's an example of the science part of it that can absolutely be measured and you can use to your advantage if you're paying attention to it. How do you use it to your advantage? I make sure. So I do a weekly uh, deal review or, or uh, pipeline review that I've been doing for years that I developed about probably about five years ago. And it's movement-based. So it's based on the principle of create, advance, and close, which it's, again, it's sales is, you know, it's it shouldn't be simple. And so most simply put, if you're not creating, advancing, and closing enough deals, you're, you're never going to hit your number as a salesperson. And you're never going to grow your company as a business. And so I'm looking for things that are moving. And there are, you know, you, you can measure how long, you know, the average time and stage, you know, for deals and deal amount as it as it goes, total time or you know the deal velocity as it moves and how quickly it's moving versus the average. You can also look at that from the other side of the coin, which is things that aren't moving. So deals will age out; they'll get past the amount of time that it's that is normal for that stage or for the total life of that deal. So it'll start slowing down, and you'll notice that. You know, it's being, you know, you'll notice little things in those meetings, like it's being talked about less and less, or it's being where the updates are more vague. And you just, you know, you can tell the, and then the other thing is pushes. So one or two pushes. And again, this is all, all within context of the industry and, and, and the company and so on that, that you're in. But, you know, I, I monitor the total number of pushes that, that a deal has been, has been, or number of times that a deal has been moved out, which is called push. And, Typically, deals that aren't going to close are, are pushed more often than those are than that aren't. And so you find your sweet spot for how many times a deal pushes, and basically you can do a combination of the deal is pushed, you know, a number, you know, greater than the average or the acceptable number of times. You know, you can look at the stage, so it's maybe it's still in an early stage, and then you could also you kind of you typically know your known offenders, and so you know the you know you know the folks that are more reliable and have you know greater you know attainments. And, and forecast and reliability versus those that don't. So you, you start looking at those together and you got your answer. And so it's pretty easy just to, I mean, honestly, at that point, you just reach out directly to the person if, if that's what your, you know, your sales leadership is comfortable with, or you just work through sales leadership and say, look, this is, I'm, I've just gotten to the point now where I can say, this is not a deal. And this one, we, we need to close this one out, do a close loss analysis and move on. That's the pattern recognition, I guess. You've worked at companies large and small. What is the difference in flavor for people thinking about whether they should join a big co versus go to a startup? How have you evaluated those different experiences and what is the difference? Yeah. So for me, you know, I, and this is, this was a, for a myth bust for me as well. I figured you know, I was in, you know, they call the big green army, right? So you have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people ultimately broken down into a bunch of different sort of like business units that all work together to, you know, to do something. I thought that would translate so easily into a big company. And that's what I sought out, you know, post Kellogg. And it was a, it was a great formative experience for me. My, my first you know, true corporate experience. I also learned very quickly that it was, it was for me, it was nothing like being in the military. As far as from a business perspective, I liked 
doing a lot more, having a lot more flexibility to change things and to influence things that I was, and sort of the degrees of difference that I was allowed at these large companies, you know, companies that have been doing what they've been doing very well for, in some cases, a hundred years, you know, it's very easy to say no, because saying yes could screw up the brand, for example. And so it, I became very quickly frustrated with the lack of ability to kind of get in, figure things out, you know, roll up your sleeves, help really quickly from, again, this is from my perspective. And so I ended up gravitating much more toward the smaller businesses where, again, you could work at the things that you like doing, I found. And also as the, as roles became available and roles progressed, that typically also happens a lot quicker at smaller companies, right? A startup can create a role out of thin air and have it staffed tomorrow with someone who's currently in the company who was doing another role yesterday. Versus that the typically it takes a little bit longer, as I say, to kind of, you know, turn that aircraft carrier that, you know, that, that big airplane, you know, the bigger it is, the harder it is to turn. And so I liked, I just liked the, the pace of the earlier stage company a lot better with what it allowed me to do. And, you know, not just for me, but for my team, right? I like being able to create those opportunities for those that are showing promise that are moving up, you know, to be able to, like I did a, a little, just a little bit ago with a team leader or with a, a team member, saw her as an aspiring leader and just created, we were bringing in another team member instead of having her report to either me or, or the other project manager who was more senior, decided to make an opportunity for her. So she gets now a first time leadership experience. And now her manager gets, now he is now a leader of a leader. So he's going to get that additional leadership experience. And all of this cost the company nothing and probably would have been a lot harder to justify in a much larger company. Cause now you're adding an additional, you know, layer or something that might have give, might go against the, you know, the, the very well thought out of, you know, HR process that, that, that company needs to run at that size. Can you talk a little bit about kind of within the framework of big and small companies? I think, you know, the conventional wisdom, right, is that process is, is just for, you know, big companies and small companies, you know, to your point, move quickly and it's kind of a different environment. But, you know, clearly given kind of your uh, areas that, that you like to focus on and your strengths, I'd imagine that you've got a point of view on this and love to hear you go into kind of that specific dichotomy, big and small vis-a-vis process. And I love you. See me smiling. I love that you hit on one of the, one of the process myths. Which is that processes are just for big companies, right? Tub, and I've heard this before. Tub, we're a small, agile company. We need to stay agile. Those processes are just gonna, they're just gonna prevent us from being flexible. They're gonna get in the way. They're gonna, they're gonna harm us. And my response is if we don't do them, especially the core processes, and this is, I wanna make sure I'm specifying this is post product market fit for those earlier stage companies. You do have to have something nailed down in order to have a process make sense. But those core processes, meaning that several dozen things that your business has to do in order to succeed as a business across all your different functions, if you don't start nailing those down, the baton will get dropped across it, it, everything you do. Is, so if you think about like, you know, the, the, the build, sale or sell and, and support and of, you know, bronze strokes, that, that flywheel that turns, you know, as you grow and grows as you grow. It's something will get dropped or many things will get dropped if you don't nail those down. So the processes that they won't sort themselves out unless someone sits down and starts from the very beginning and, and maps it out, even in a very simple, even in a very simple sense with a defined structure, you're just, you will do things inconsistently. It will take you more time than you'd like to be able to deliver the same exact thing consistently to a customer or whether it's external or internal and you're going to end up doing the same thing over and over again and wondering why it's taking you so long. It's interesting you mentioned that split for a post-product market fit company. How do you think about the principles that you apply? Because I think, to your point, I think pre-product market fit, it's not so much about process, but you still need key principles because people talk about agile as if it's a check-in meeting every two weeks, sprint planning every two weeks, do your retro every two That's just That's not being agile, right? But there are principles that are really important. And what are the principles that you think from a RevOps perspective or you know, from that functional perspective could be applied to an earlier stage company? That's a great question. You know, one of the things is you're, you are a little, bit, a little bit at the mercy of the market, right? So where you're trying to find that fit, and this is, I know this seems very hard to do, but as quickly as you can try to get those, you know, those patterns and feed those back in so you can pivot from being a market-based or sales-based company to more of a product-based company. What I mean by that is when you first start off, and we, we all start off here, 
you typically get your one, you know, your one customer or your first few, few customers, and you end up doing a lot of customization, right? Because they come to you and, and you're so happy that they're your customer and they're keeping, you're keeping your lights on. We're also trying to build the other things that you're building. And they say, Hey, Dan, could you also, you know, could you, I know you, I know you guys don't do this, but could you, you know, fill in the blank technical thing that company needs that's typically not transferable. It's not scalable to any other of your other customers. And you say yes, because you, you really want to keep that customer. That's being more of a, you know, more of a, that sales-based, you know, business. You want to switch. I think I missed some of this earlier. You want to switch to being more than the market-based or product-based company as quickly as possible because you want the markets, you want the demands of the broader base market to drive your product versus one or two customers who have louder voices that are, you know, paying your bills, you know, and having and having an adverse impact because you're like you said, you have, you know, you're trying to trying to get, go from your backlog and grow your sprints and, and get those things in place so that you can build out your your product in accordance with your overall product roadmap. They're able to really have so many devs and so much time. And every minute they're spending changing the font from Arial to Calibri, you know, for in this one, you know, client, you know, a software example in this one client's instance, and that's, you know, unless you can build that out to be scalable and that's a desirable feature for more, you know, more than just that one customer, you're taking away time from, you know, from, from really building out your platform. What are those techniques, as you mentioned, to get those patterns? How can businesses at the earlier stages get that data. So as you say, they're not becoming like a custom dev shop, essentially for a small group of clients. Yeah. It's, it goes back to what I mentioned with the, you know, this having a consistent way of ingesting that feedback, right? So it's, you know, when you're having those conversations with that one-off customer, you know, if it's possible to gather the, the feedback from the others or, or take from the others, you know, other points of feedback around your functionality, your current functionality and future functionality for that product, while you're also gathering the market feedback as much as you can for future bills that maybe will become part of your platform or a, or an additional solution that you, that's not current functionality, you know. And again, I, I know this is hard, so I don't want to I don't want to come out like I'm, I'm saying this is really easy to do. But as much as you can, either try to say no to the things that are you know going to take a lot more dev time and and are going to just they're going to churn through your your cycles and they're not going to be much more value added aside from that one customer. Or figure out a way to make that thing applicable to make essentially make it a product release that that more more than one customer can use, right? So that that might get you a quick win with your current customer base, or maybe even get you you know make you that much more valuable to to someone who's a potential customer because you've added a feature, even if it's a small feature. If it's applicable across the platform, it's a lot more valuable than just the one thing. And so remember the you know the one feature for the one customer. So try to make it try to make it more scalable or or deployable to more than one customer as much as you can, and then it just you know and then and chalk that up that feedback that you get from them as one of X other pieces of feedback that you're getting and really try to you know surface the other thing I'll say that we that you know that we found valuable is you can't always you know sometimes your releases get delayed or your features get delayed and this is I've seen this across companies. One thing that you can offer, so if you you can negotiate a little bit. So instead of creating that one-off thing that's going to take, you know, the next month for your team to do and be all-consuming, you know, potentially offer something else in an exchange. Whether that is training, whether that's a one-off, you know, custom bit of analysis or something needs to be done, or some kind of other service delivery, try to do that instead as a just as a you know, as a one-off to basically negotiate away from doing that one thing that you know is just going to tie up your team. And again, that's, this is really, you know, this is, this is sort of hard one advice over the years that is, it's extremely difficult to do in real time. And so I applaud anybody that can actually, you know, politely say no or offer something in, you know, versus having to go through and, and tie up their dev teams. It's so true though, isn't it? Validation and focus are key, but it's easier said than done when you have those pressures and that sense of, oh, we just got to keep this client heavy, happy. And-, and there are other voices too, right? There are other voices in the room, especially once you're funded, right? Once you have that wonderful and terrible VC funding that you get, or even pre that, if you have, you know, a number of seed founders who are more vocal versus silent, they're going to have an opinion too. They're going to be pushing, you know, if it's VC, there, there's, there are going to be technologies within there or other services within their portfolio that they're going to want to kind of cross-pollinate and including into your business and vice versa. So they're going to be pitching you and, and pitching others 
and they're going to have opinions around how to do things and what you should be doing with your products. And those are things that I highly recommend vetting very much before you take you know, take that funding as you go on and do your roadshow because once you know as soon as that ink is dried and it particularly once there's a you know, majority ownership of that company, the rules change. And uh, you know, and that's that now becomes the loudest voice in the room and is going to dictate a lot of what you do. I'm conscious of time. Before we move on, Andy, is there anything else you want to cover? Yeah, you know, I'd love to hear, you know, obviously this is a podcast where we're interviewing leaders and love to maybe touch uh, quickly on, you know, your point of view, particularly if you have a contrary point of view around being a leader, either, you know, balancing business outcomes versus team welfare, or maybe leading in, leaning into your strengths and in, in, in different kinds of leadership. But yeah, can you give us, uh, can you give us your view? So one of the things that I've actually found that is, that has been, it's made, in some cases, it's made work a little bit harder, but I think it's made it better is that you can actually show up to work as yourself and you don't have to choose anymore between getting things done or being empathic or caring about your team. Right. And so it used to be, at least in my experience, even not even just, you know, not in the military, but even after when you showed up to work, you checked your personality at the door. And you had to be, a, you know, you had to be kind of show up in a certain persona and be, you know, a very serious leader. And, and it was all on getting things done and, you know, and team welfare and caring about people, you know, took a back seat. And this is something that was a bit at, at odds actually with what I, you know, what I learned in the military, which was, you know, that the saying was mission first troops always, which meant that he always had to balance that, you know, it's a healthy tension between you do have to get the job done and you have to take care of your people. And I found less and less in a, in a corporate environment that seemed to be true. It was just, you just had to get the job done. And what I've been pleasantly surprised at is as we've evolved, as the conversations around vulnerability and empathy and you know, and transparency and authenticity have, have come into the fore, I've actually embraced those because one, it's allowed me to show up and get myself at work, which is a lot more fun than trying to be you know super serious all the time. And, and it also allows you to just be open with people. And again, you make it an and conversation. We can be people. We can see each other as teammates or one another as teammates and we can get things done, right? It doesn't have to be or. And so that's the part that I really embraced and that, you know, that I get excited about at work is I get to, you know, I get to be a person with my team and, and vice versa, right? They know, they know the person that I am and all, all of my quirks and, and everything that I'm into. You know, we talked about, I love, I love my eighties hair mans. Right? My team knows that, right? We played tribute before. They've seen me sing karaoke badly and fully embrace that, right? And we can still show up, you know, the next day and get things done together. So, you know, it's that's the part that I that I really enjoy that I've actually loved seeing that evolve over over the years. Well, we're gonna go into our quick fire segment. So ask you a few questions here. First off, what factor has been most important to your success as a business leader? For me, I'll go back to what we talked about, which is Figuring out who I am and then adapting as things evolve within my own framework. So staying true to myself while evaluating new opportunities. Every time that I followed that framework, it's gone well for me. And anytime I've strayed from that, it hasn't. What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to avoid, given what you know now? The big thing is don't do the second tier of that big company. It's uh, as far as, you know, what I call kind of experience density, it wasn't worth it. I knew I didn't like working in big companies. I just decided to go, you know, a second round to validate it. And I should have listened to myself. I shouldn't have done it. What is something that you used to believe that you no longer believe? So this is highly ironic. I used to think that process was a four-letter word, right? Now I design them for a living as part of my job. But actually, I like doing it. I blog about it. I get on podcasts and talk about it and do other talks. And it's just one of those things that if you do it right in a company, that it really ties things together and makes a company run really well. What don't most people understand about your role? I think I touched on this before, but a lot of folks think RevOps and they hear the word optimization and efficiency, and they think it's just about plugging, te- plugging in you know, technologies and, and doing analysis to just to make things run faster and optimizing processes. And, and really what I find every day is it's a constant balance of the technical, meaning can we do something? And honestly, these days, the answer to that is probably yes. There's some piece of technology or something out there that can help you do what you're looking to do. But there's also the more important piece, which is the practical part of it. And that's the, should we do it? And how best should we do it if we choose to? What one thing do you strongly believe that most successful people don't? 
I'm not sure that most successful people don't believe this, but one of the things I would caution successful people to do is, is don't buy in too much into best practices. Things evolve so quickly and it's in best practices, especially out of context or here, they can be very quickly outdated. They can allow you to, you know, breed complacency and sort of homogeneity with within your team. So if you just buy off on something as that's been pitched as a best practice, you know, it's a best practice until it's not. If it even was in the first place and something better comes along, a better way of doing something comes along. So I'm much more of a fan of frameworks that, you know, that can be done consistently. And I don't worry so much around following best practices. What's your favorite under the radar networking hack? Oh, that's a good one. Is that the, I think I mentioned this before, the, the hidden job market, right? And especially within early stage companies, it's reaching out to someone and saying, you know, I'm thinking about doing this. And that person's saying, you know, we were just talking at a leadership meeting last week around fill in the blank thing. You know, this might be a good fit for you. I found more people roles on my teams. I found my own roles that way. And I'd advise people, I'd, you know, lit people up on LinkedIn or just directly with a text saying, Hey, this company over here is going to hire, you know, is thinking about hiring this role. Why don't you reach out and I'll do a, I'll do a, you know, a handover. Awesome. Some great insights there. So as we move into the final segment, can you share with us a little bit about content you enjoy consuming blog posts, books, podcasts, anything that you think are really is really valuable for you as you conduct your career and find that work-life balance? Yeah, absolutely. There's, there are a few sources across you know, kind of the, the revenue landscape. One is the, for me, the best resource out there, the guy who sells, you know, you just gives practical advice, writes about it, talks about it is Mike Weinberg. If you're interested in at all, you know, true direct selling, uh, that he's your best voice out there. Equally best voice for all things sales development, just also call, you know, SDR or BDR is going to be Jeb Blunt. I've been recommending him for years, ever since, you know, part of my job was running you know, SDR teams. And he just, and there's a lot of people out there that talk, especially in sales. And they're usually, it's because they're selling some kind of system. These guys are out there just giving solid advice that I have used and my teams have used for years and, and it's legitimate. In terms of social selling, I haven't seen anybody better on LinkedIn than Bryn Tillman. She's, she's masterful at it. And I, I highly recommend following her. And then for RevOps, I think the best voices out there from what I've seen are, are there are two guys out there, two you know, guys doing running separate companies. One is Taft Love uh, years ago and, and have been uh, paying attention to him. And there's a guy who, who builds native uh, Salesforce applications, and but also talks around, he does it for this express purpose of improving RevOps and automating RevOps. And his name's Harold Toker. Those two guys, if you want to learn more about RevOps and all the special the pitfalls, they're out on LinkedIn talking about it pretty much daily. And so highly engaged and really quality content. Yeah. What tools do you recommend? Anything specific that you think is really valuable day to day? Yeah. Good question. So my, I run my life off my calendar and that's one of the things that I share with my team is if it's on my calendar, it gets done. And so that's my to-do list. And so very, I know that's very low tech, but it's one thing that I can set, you know, it's got little reminders and, and things on there that, that help me out. But it's, if it's on my calendar, it gets done. Aside from that's really my biggest personal tool, I mentioned EOS, which I highly recommend as an operating system for going to run, particularly a visionary founder-led company, like an early, like a startup or early stage company. Uh, and then you can get a lot of miles out of your, you know, again, the basic tech stack, right? Your CRM, Excel, some kind of common document storage like SharePoint, Confluence, you know, Google Docs, as you're sharing out those processes. And then, you know, later you can layer in all your fun tech stack toys, right? That we all, you know, those of us that, that have been around in a company long enough to be able to have the luxury of these. So all your CPQs, your forecasters, your, your you know, outreach sequencers, your client engagement, your conversational intelligence, all those tools you get to layer in later. The one thing I'll say is don't bring them in too early, right? Don't let the technology, your know, tech stack wag the dog. Get your processes in order first, right? As a business, so you've got your vision, your strategy, don't jump direct, directly to resources like technology. Put your processes in place first and then have those have the technology support the process versus the other way around. You can get into a lot of trouble, build up a lot of technical and process debt early on if you go the wrong way. I'm going to go a little bit off script here and I'm going to ask you, what are you up to these days? Oh man, so no longer... So you know, I co-founded that brewery a few years ago. So you know, we parted ways on that. So, so not doing that. Really looking at this, you know... Doing my blog, I've got I've got a consulting firm that I that I started up about five years ago that I do. It's it's just nights and weekends things. 
mostly for people that I used to work with. And it's called year six. The idea was really to help early stage companies get past the five-year hump, right? Which is, it, it plagues a lot of small businesses. And so it's a lot of, I get asked to do a lot of things in, in terms of, you know, thinking about sales dev team setup, which I've done many times before. I get asked about a lot of RevOps things. So, hey, you know, you, Todd, you talk about lead to lasting customer journey. You know, can you help me design that and break that down into the kind of lead to opportunity to close one and then post close one? And then, you know, thinking about pipeline management, you know, dashboarding, reporting metrics, all of those things to help run the business and then the process part of it as well. So that's, that takes up a fair bit of my time outside of work these days. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about year six. What's the sweet spot for that? You mentioned early stage companies but around the year five mark, but how, what does that really translate to in practice? Typically what I find is it's, you know, some $10 million in annual revenue and, you know, a handful of sellers. So I like to say somewhere between two and 10 sellers, you know, a, a couple of products and, you know, it's more about process maturity than anything else. But I found that most, most often it's with, you know, seed or series A funding or s- somewhere in that space, whether it's to help with due diligence, to get them to where they have a repeatable, a repeatable sales process to be able to showcase to, you know, on, on that roadshow or, or just to be able to make sure that they're actually hitting their numbers consistently. Right. So it's a lot of what I found is it's a lot of people I used to work with who got used to the healthy tech stack, all the reporting support, having a full RevOps team that are now running their own teams. So they go up there, they're now, you know, CROs at their own teams. They don't have all those resources, but the expectations, the requirements are still there, right? They still have to hit their numbers. They still have to woo uh, potential investors. And, and so typically the conversation goes, you know, after we get coming out of past pleasantries and how you're doing and how's the job going, it's Todd, you know, that stuff that, that you did over here, you know, can we talk about how I, how we can use some of that stuff over here? And, and so we end up, the conversation just kind of goes from there and, and we kind of figure it out. That's awesome. So if, if people want to get in touch with you about that, how can they get in, get in contact? How yeah, really simple. It's just Todd, T-O-D at year-6.com. It's the website's year-6.com and it's also year, it's year six spelled out. So Y-E-A-R space and then six spelled out on LinkedIn is the company page. Thanks so much for sharing that. And thank you so much for joining us on Adventures in Growth. Todd Rohde, it's been awesome having you on. Thanks, Todd. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. And that's a wrap on this week's episode of Adventures in Growth. Thanks for joining us. And we hope you were able to find some inspiration for your own journey. You can subscribe to our newsletter to receive fresh weekly content that deconstructs success in tech leadership by heading over to adventuresingrowth.co. Until next time, go have an adventure.